As we do pray this morning, I want to call special attention um, to the attacks in Kabul. This is, it's a heart-wrenching thing. I read this morning the accounts of all the servicemen and women who lost their lives. And what struck me was the ages. It's 20, 22, 24, 23, 20. It's just heartbreaking. And there's all kinds of things that people will say and all kinds of things people will do. But this morning, I want us to just pause and grieve with the people who are hurting this morning and pray for those families and the 170 other people who lost their lives and for wisdom and discernment and just say, God, help us. So would you join me in prayer? Father, you, you know all things, and all things are under your hand. And so we don't, we don't come to you bringing you new information or, or new understanding. God, you see and you feel the pain of the people who are grieving over Thursday's attack. And it's a reminder, God, that this has been going on and, will, and is continuing to happen. So, God, we pray that you would... God, that you would do a miracle. God, that you would call attention to yourself and that people would worship you and praise you and turn to you and, and would repent. And things, God, that we can't do, that no government system, no military action, nothing can do what you can do. And so we do ask, God, for you to intervene. And God, we, we ask knowing that you are perfect and holy and sovereign, and so we trust you in your will, but as your children, we still cry out for that. God, I pray for the comfort of those families, especially for those, the families of those 13 servicemen and women who, who willingly went to represent and protect and to serve, and to guard, and to help. And they knew the risks of what they were doing. And God, I'm so grateful that you, in your image, create men and women with that desire. So God, I thank you for those 13. I thank you for their heart to serve this country and I pray for comfort for their families and their friends, those who served with them, those who have loved them since they were born, the grieving mothers and fathers and spouses and friends. I pray, God, for your comfort over them. And I pray, God, that they would also be near people who would also sit and weep and grieve with them and point them to you. God, it is in times like this that we just, we just seem to be getting daily reminders that you are the only one we can put our hope in, and that you will deliver us fully and finally one day. And until that day, God, help us to be faithful and to put our trust in you and to love our neighbor as ourselves as we worship you with our entire lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fitting to look at Psalm 51 this morning, and it is a 
is a well-known psalm of David. It's, it's unique in that it is one of the only psalms that really gives specifics as to when and how it was written. Often we get an author, but this gives a situation of what is happening. A couple um, weeks ago, Robbie hit uh, again on this theme that we've been saying over and over and over again. And it bears repeating in the, in the wake of what's going on in the country right now and in the world right now. It bears repeating that this idea that, that our biggest enemy, our greatest threat is not the things outside of us. And it is so tempting to buy into the idea that it is, that the greatest threat to us as God's people and to the church are outside of us. But the Bible says over and over and over and over again, the greatest threat to the people of God are our own hearts. That God is sovereign. God will protect. God will guide. God, God will, he, he stays hands. He moves nations into power. He causes them to rise and fall. But our call as his people is, is to be faithful. And that that is our calling that God sets aside. The story of the Bible is that God redeems a people for himself and sets them aside as, as holy, but not as holy just in, in their goodness, but in holy that in that he sets them apart and he builds them up and sanctifies them so that people would see them, that they would become a city on a hill and people would see them and glorify their father in heaven. That we are transformed individually and then as individuals are formed into a family and are sent out to proclaim his excellencies to a lost and hurting world. That's the plan. That's the narrative from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus is very clear about this. And so I just will want to continue to say that we will stake our flag on saying that our greatest threat is within our hearts and our greatest hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will preach it and we will preach it and we will preach it. The pre- preaching of the kingdom of God that comes like a mustard seed and changes the world. And so you've been hearing this message from us for for years, really, and it's really kind of ramped up as the distractions feel like they're getting louder all around us. So we say, no, look inward, look in your own heart, have God search your heart, be sanctified by him. And I want to address right now the people who are saying like, yeah, I hear that and I'm feeling it. I feel it. You You don't need to tell me anymore that I'm the greatest enemy to my own sanctification. I get that. I feel it. I feel it on a day, a daily basis. As day after day, I try to follow Jesus I, 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 and I struggle through it. I try to block out these noises that are around me and outside of me. I try to not get distracted by those things. And yet I find myself still going over there. I tell myself, I, I, I kind of hype myself up in the morning saying, God, you are on your throne. Jesus, you are king. I trust you in all things. And then I start listening to the news and I start hearing some things and I read a couple of articles and a post and I, I start to find myself straying over there. Like if that's you, I want you to know that that's me too. And if you're in that situation, then this psalm addresses that. If you are saying, I, I feel that I'm my own greatest enemy. I feel my heart stray. I feel that my heart is is constantly wandering and I I get it over here and then it strays over here. 
I feel that. So what do I do? Well, the answer in Psalm 51 is the answer that Jesus gives as well, which is we need to be made new. We need a new heart. David shares kind of his path to that new heart here in Psalm 51. He says in verse 1, Have have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We see here that the, the very beginning of this, David starts on this path to a new heart. He starts with God. And that seems like the most basic of all answers, but it's critical. Look at what he's saying. He's, God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. God, this is about you. You are the one that has to do this for me. I can't do this. There's nothing I can say or do or change or commit myself to that is going to create what I need inside of me. You have to do this. His hope is only in God. And I want to just tell you very clearly and very plainly, if you want a new heart, if you want to be made new, if you're tired of the sin that is pervading in your heart and, and, and the, maybe the anger or the unforgiveness or the bitterness or the frustration or whatever, the addiction, whatever's going on, if you want that to change, then you need a new heart. And if you need a new heart, you have to go to the only one who can change your heart. You can't do it yourself. I know it's simple, but it's really important. If, if, you, if you come here just hoping to get a few tips to, um, to just make your life better and improve it, you're not going to find it. The work of God starts with God. Look to him. When the creation isn't working properly, you, work, you look to the creator. It's not going to change any other way. And so David sets that out right away. Scott, it's you. It's according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. Not because I'm worthy of being saved, but because you are a savior. And he knows this. And he calls out and he puts his hope in God. And he puts his hope in God alone. And he starts to get this kind of interaction where he says, okay, now that I'm focused on you, God, it's all, it's all in you. I also, now it becomes very specific He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We see this heart wrenching repentance from David. Maybe you've been there before where you're just repenting and you're praying to God and you're saying, God, like my sin is ever before me. It's, it's all I can see right now. I can't get away from it. It's all I'm capable of. It's all that I'm producing. And here's what's interesting about this just gut-wrenching repentance from David. Is that when you know the story behind this psalm, you realize that David didn't immediately feel this way. That David had a process to get there. The story of David and Bathsheba is a story of seemingly small sin and compromise that grows into horrific sin. And David is completely unaware from it, of it. So what we see is David 
notices Bathsheba. If you don't know the story, I'll, I'll just give the very high-level Cliff's notes. But David notices Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah, and David desires her and ends up taking her. And then, in order to cover up this sin, he has her husband, Uriah, killed to cover it up. It's pretty horrific. But here's the thing about it. Even though he did all those horrifying things, he was completely blind to it. This man who's called having a heart after God's own heart is completely blind to the fact that he took another man's wife as his own and then had her husband murdered and killed, sent off to battle so that he would die in order to cover up his own sin. This guy was completely blind to it. Until in 2 Samuel, and as this story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, Nathan comes to him and tells him this parable of a man, a poor man who had one sheep, one lamb that he had raised from its birth and raised like a child. And there was this wealthy man who had a ton of sheep. And this wealthy man came along and needed to prepare a lamb for his guests and didn't want to sacrifice one of his own. So he takes this poor man's only lamb and sacrifices him and feeds him to his guests. And when David hears this from Nathan, when Nathan tells him about this man, David says to him, says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. How could David be so blind? It's because as we say so often here, is the thing about blind spots are you can't see them. That's why they're called blind spots. And I don't know about you, but I'm amazed at how often we convince ourselves that we have no blind spots. That we convince ourselves that we are thinking about everything rightly, that we're thinking about everything rationally and biblically. And we are convinced in our own minds and we become wise in our own eyes, completely blind. And that's what is happening to David here. David couldn't be in sin because he is a man of God. He is the king of Israel. We tend to think we are far more innocent than we are we become blind to our own sin. Listen, don't underestimate your ability and my ability to do this. David, a man after God's own heart, if he could be fooled, if he doesn't even recognize that he is the evil man in the parable, like, imagine, like, if he kind of had an inkling, like, ah, I don't know, this might be wrong or whatever. As Nathan starts to tell the story, David might have picked up on it, but he doesn't. You know who else doesn't is read some of the parables of Jesus and what the Pharisees respond with. When things are laid out before us, we find ourselves heaping condemnation on ourselves and we don't even know it. We are so good at denying our own sin and making it not seem as bad. And one of the reasons we do that is because we get distracted by external circumstances and we compare ourselves to others. We grade our behavior on a curve. If we get into an argument with someone, we, we judge ourselves compared to their behavior and we get extra credit for being right. 
right? And so we, we look at ourselves, it's, it's hard, it's, you know, we say like, well, yeah, I know I didn't handle that the best, but it's hard to blame, it's hard to blame me for getting a little upset, you know, it's hard to be right all the time, right? It's hard to deal with people that are wrong. You're rational. Don't look at facts. And so we say those things and we, uh, we justify ourselves and in our behavior, in our heart. We justify our lack of forgiveness because of the egregiousness of the other's sin. We justify our lack of kindness because of how the other person acted in the argument. And our lack of compassion, we actually end up calling it holiness like the Pharisees did. We read the Gospels and we tend to put ourselves in the position of the disciples. And we think that if we were there, that we would be one of the faithful disciples when often we are the Pharisees. We read the Old, Test the Old Testament and we imagine ourselves as the faithful people of Israel when we are often the idolaters and the faithless. And we do that because we look at the people who are against us and we say, well, I know they're not on God's side, so I must be. I know that they're in the wrong, so I must be right. I know they're not the hero of the story, so I must be. And we end up like David, heaping judgment on others for the sins that we commit. That is called hypocrisy. And it is evil in the sight of the Lord. The cure for this is found in verse 4 when he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Such a strange statement. Against you only have I sinned. Like, I think Uriah and Bathsheba would be like, um, excuse me. You know, maybe, maybe you also sinned against us. So surely David isn't saying like, God, nobody else matters. It doesn't really matter. It's only against you, God. All the rest of the people, it wasn't, it wasn't so bad. That's not his point. The point is this. All of our sin is first and foremost against a holy God. Yes, we sin against one another. Yes, we cause pain and brokenness in one another's lives. Yes, that happens to us. But all of our sin is first and foremost against a holy God because it is sin against the creator and his created order. It's against his design and it causes brokenness and pain and misery in the world. If you sin against your brother, you sin against God, regardless of how wrong your brother is. What that means is when you get in that place where David is, David's now not looking around. He's not justifying anything. He's not seeing anybody. He's not grading on a curve. He's not saying, yeah, but I'm a pretty faithful king. Like, I'm way better than Saul was. And yeah, like, remember when I slayed Goliath? And like, he's not looking at that. Now he's just him and God. And when you come face to face with God, there is no grading on a curve. There's no handicapping of your scorecard. And the judgment against your sin and my sin, it is just you and God. It is just me and God. And he has not sinned against you. There's a thing that became popular on, on YouTube, um, or the YouTubes, as the kids say, um, that where they would isolate vocal tracks. You seen any of this? Have you guys seen this? So they'll, they'll take a song... And then they'll, like a live performance or whatever, they'll take a song and they'll, they'll pull out all the instruments, all the background vocals or whatever, and they'll just isolate someone's vocals and just lays it out there bare for everybody to listen to. 
And sometimes it's hilariously horrific. Like when you take away the, the, the um, digital engineering and the mixing and the background vocals to smooth things out and, and all these other things, you take all that away and someone's vocals are just laid bare on the internet. Like I can't imagine. Like sometimes it's, but sometimes it's awesome. Like sometimes you pull that out. Like I, I'm pretty sure like this morning's worship was really incredible. And there was part, as I was thinking about this illustration, I was like, man, if you just isolated Joe and Sarah and Jason and just isolate their vocals, like I think that would be beautiful. Some of you don't know, you haven't been here long enough to know that I, I have led worship here a couple of times. Let me just tell you, if you isolated my vocal track there, not the same, not the same. Because there's something, but there's something just bare and naked and scary. I feel embarrassed for the person when I listen to those. I feel embarrassed for them. I'm like, oh gosh, like I would hate to have myself just like laid out there bare and that. But this is what happens to David. And the noisiness and the craziness all around him, war that was happening, him leading God's people into to battle, trying to protect God's nation, trying to be righteous, being a man after God's own heart, being a much, much more faithful king than his predecessor. David, in the midst of all of that, is having the vocal track of his life isolated and laid bare. And it's horrifying. There's no other variables, just his sin. And what he discovers is that not only are his actions horrifying, but the heart that produced it is worse. This is critical for us. It is true that our sin is never in a vacuum, and our confessions are often clouded by the sin around us. But when I isolate the vocal track of my life and just lay it out there, me and God, it's not me against my enemy compared. It is me and God. I find I'm the enemy and my sin is ever before me. What would that look like right now for you? Maybe you're thinking of a situation or circumstance and you've looked at all these other, these, these other circumstances around you and these interactions around you or whatever. What would it look like to isolate the vocal track of your life and to lay it before the Lord? It's just you before God saying that thing, reacting in that way, thinking that thought, having that attitude, making that post. What does your heart reveal? This is what happens to David, and it's why he calls out for mercy. And this is his plea. Purge me, verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. What, what David is saying here is do whatever you have to do, God. Like David's life has been isolated before the Lord, and it is horrifying to him, and his sin is right in front of him. It's all around him. He can't get away from it. And so what he says to God, he says, God, according to your mercy, according to your steadfast love, like purge this from me. Rid me of this. Whatever you have to do, 
Hyssop is a, is a plant that has, there's bitterness in it. He's saying like, he's going through all these things. Purge me, wash me, break my bones. Whatever you have to do, get this out of me. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and upheld me, uphold me with a willing spirit. You hear it like now in his plea, like just imagine like that's where this repentance is coming from. It's not just coming from him saying, oh man, I did this horrible thing. It's coming from when he isolates it and it's just him and God. He looks at himself and he sees the horrors of his heart and he pleads for mercy. He says, cure me of this, wash me, create in me a clean heart. And there's a couple of things about this section. Notice David isn't just asking for a clean slate. He's asking for a new and a clean heart. We know that Jesus said that out of the overflow of our hearts, the mouth speaks. We don't need new behaviors. We don't need new laws that will make us behave in a certain way. What we need are new hearts out of which streams of life flow. It becomes a spring of eternal life, of the abundant life. And what we need to understand about that is notice what he's saying here. It's painful. That kind of process is painful. Hyssop is bitter. He says, let the bones you have broken rejoice. Like that's painful imagery. And notice that he says, the bones you have broken, God. Not just the ones that kind of happened to me by happenstance, but no, you have done this to me for my good. That God will use painful circumstances and cause painful circumstances in order to purge the sin from you for your good, for your joy. We get so upset with God for allowing these circumstances in our lives, not realizing that he does it for us. Be like getting mad at a surgeon who's removing a a cancerous tumor from us and getting mad at him because our side is sore now. Just imagine doing that. Like, I'm going to sue you because I'm sore. Have the surgeon be like, I saved your life. Yeah, but now I hurt. I don't like it. It kind of sounds like a two-year-old, right? I'm, I'm, I'm horrified, honestly, how often I sound like a two-year-old when I'm complaining to God. And him saying, like, don't you see what I'm doing? I'm bringing you to this place. And if your sin is ever before you, then you will desire that. See, whatever you have to do. Look, if you're looking for a new heart and a fresh start, it's not easy. If you want an easy way to that, the gospel is not the way. But the gospel is the way of true transformation and power and hope. The other thing that strikes me about this is the audacity of David. Like, imagine, like, your sin is ever before you between you and a holy God, and he has the nerve to ask that God would have mercy on him. He has the nerve to ask and to hope that God would do this. Why? Because he knows of God's steadfast love. And here's the beautiful thing about the gospel, that when you are laid bare before God and your sin is before you and you get to a place where maybe you look at and and you hate everything you see in front of you, you get awakened to the incredible reality that God loves you in the midst of that. 
that you look at your sin and you are horrified and disgusted and feel like you can't even stand. And the God of the universe, the holy God of the universe, looks at you and says, come to me, my child. Come to me. You are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. My grace is abounding. My mercy is abounding. My love is steadfast. And so David cries out to God because he knows that this is who God is. That's why he created us. It's the point. David knows this, that his redemption and sanctification is the point. And to declare to the whole world who this God is, that we are called to then rejoice in that, that our repentance leads to rejoicing. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice then where David finds the hope in this. As he's laid bare before God, the vocal track of his, his life is isolated before God and is horrifying to him. And God says to him, come here. My grace is sufficient. And he heals him and he binds up his broken bones and his wounds. And David knows like this is, this is the joy of your salvation, the salvation that you give me. Like that's where this comes from. Like this is a joyful thing to rejoice in this. And then our response is, is David says in verse 13, I will, then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Listen, look at what he's saying here. He's saying the message that I have for the world is look how God has bound up my broken bones and healed me. Look how he has restored me. Look at what a, what, how horrifying my sin was before him and he redeemed me and he rescued me and he's restored me and he is renewing me. That's what I'm teaching people about. That's what will make sinners return. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It starts by turning to God for his mercy and it ends as he's received all of this. He turns and he sings and he declares God's goodness to a lost and hurting world. Church, this is what this world needs now more than anything are people who actually believe that God is who he says he is. And he sent Jesus as he said that he sent him, that Jesus lived and died and rose again. And that the power of the Holy Spirit that rose him from the grave is the power that resides in us. And it transforms us and makes us new and makes us love in a way that is confusing and makes us have grace and mercy and forgiveness that does not make sense to the world that they would look at that and as we would build this platform and we would be this people that the world would look at that and say what is it what is it with those people who is their god this god that they claim to be worshiping why does he make them into these types of people that's what we are called to be that's the hope of the world we sing his praises. That's when we gather together. That's when we sing loud. And David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We know this. David is confident in this because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God draws near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. And so if we want to glorify him, then we come together to worship him, not from a spirit of self-righteousness, not from a spirit of feeling like, okay, well, we've got it together and we're honoring God and we're doing what we're supposed to do, but a as a spirit of a broken spirit and contrite heart of people who come together calling out for his mercy and saying, God, have mercy on us. I want to worship you and I want to glorify you. And then this week I did this over here, but God, my, I'm isolating this. I don't know. I don't care all the craziness that's going around me. My heart said this, God, would you please purge this out of me and give me a clean heart so that I can sing your praises so that I can declare to the world that this God is who he says he is, and he does what he says he will do. He's not pleased by our ceremonies. He's not pleased by our facades. He wants us to be broken before him. That's what we're called to be. It's a glorious thing. If you've ever laid your soul bare, like I can't tell you the flood of joy that has overcome me in times in my life where this I felt this the deepest. Where I have just, where God has just in his mercy given me eyes to see only my sin that's before me. And then to meet me with grace and forgiveness and how that has overwhelmed me and made me just cry out with joy. Like I want that more. I want it for you. I want it for us. So this morning, like when we're sitting out here and, you know, one moment the the sun goes under and it gets muggy and and we think that everything's going to blow over and the next minute the sun just comes in and turns everything into a sauna and we're just sitting here in the midst of this. Would you do me the favor of just considering, God, what? Would you create a clean heart in me? God, would you lay, my sin is before me. If you are in that place, then this morning is the time to respond to that. And maybe for you, that response means that you're going to fill out that card and you're going to say, hey, I need to talk to somebody. Maybe that response for you this morning is that you're saying, I need to follow Jesus. And I've never done that. I need to follow Jesus. Maybe that response for you this morning is to repent And you realize like you've been blinded by your own self-righteousness. You've been blinded by hypocrisy that you realize that you are heaping condemnation on others and that it's actually on yourself. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to let that go. He loves you. He is for you. He is with you. He will forgive you. He will restore you. He will renew in you. He will create in you a clean heart. And maybe your response is baptism. So we have the the band come up. We're going to sing a response song. And during this time, I want you to consider that. Like, what, what is the response right now? And if you have never been baptized as a believer, like in our church, what we do is we practice what we call believer's baptism by immersion. And we just believe when we look in scripture that people believed and then were baptized. And so I, maybe you were like me. I was baptized as a, as a baby, um, and I don't look at that negatively at all. My parents are faithful people. They're the reasons why. Like they taught me the ways of the Lord and why I'm serving and doing this today. They, they taught me that. And in our tradition, that's what we did. But as I grew and, and read scripture more, I, f- I felt convicted and compelled that, 
um, that I needed to be baptized in, in the way that Jesus was baptized. And so at 27 years old, I, I got baptized. Having been in ministry for several years, I said, I need to be baptized. And so I was baptized. So if that's you this morning, that would encourage you this morning, when we go down there, get baptized. Come and talk to, to me, or you can talk to Jeff. You can talk to Kevin. Um, I think Doug is around here too. There's Doug. Um, just grab one of us and just talk to us. And then we can have you be baptized this morning. But whatever the situation is, you can go through this right now this morning and just go on about your day. Or you can let God do the work that he alone can do in your heart. And maybe today is a day for something new inside of you. Maybe today is the day that you let go and you forgive and you turn something over to God and say, God, this is yours. It's not mine anymore. It's yours. It's the day that you confess this sin that you've been holding on to or carrying. You just say, today's the day, God. Create in me a clean heart. Whatever it is, don't walk away from him. Let's pray together. God, would you do your work? It's ironic to me, God, that we talk about how the greatest thing we can do is ask you to do your thing, and then we talk about it a lot. So, Lord, would you forgive me for that? I just turn to you, Father. You do your work. Holy Spirit, you do your work, please. I pray that you do it in a way that as people leave here, God, if you meet them in this moment, that they would not give credit to the music this morning, that they would not give credit to the preaching, that they would not give credit to to the river and to seeing the beauty of, of baptisms or whatever, but they would give you alone the glory and the credit. You are the God of all creation. And this morning, people all around this world are worshiping you. And we join in that. We join in the chorus of how great you are. God, would you create in us as a church family clean hearts. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. We remember what it was like to just be forgiven and to be washed clean. And as we go down and we baptize, I pray, God, that you would convict people that need to be baptized, that today would be the day to just go get baptized. And for those who have been baptized, that we would remember our baptism and rejoice in it and rejoice in our salvation that comes from you. That you would give us new hearts and that those new hearts would be on display to a lost and hurting world so that they might declare your glory. It is only you that can do this. It is only the name of Jesus only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.